Uh, so we are uh, finishing off our series on the Trinity today. Uh, where we've spent the last four weeks looking at how it is that the Trinity impacts different areas in our lives, what we think about that. So we started off with what does the Trinity look like before creation? What does the Trinity look like in creation was the next week. Then last week we looked at what does the Trinity look like in salvation? How does thinking about the Trinity and understanding God as Trinity uh, change our view or understanding of salvation? And today we're going to culminate it in... Uh, what does the Trinity look like, act like, impact? How does it impact our Christian life? Right, so uh, I, I think ultimately we, we find ourselves in this space. If, if you're gathered here and you know the, the gospel of Jesus coming and, and living a life that we ought to live and then dying the death that we d- rightly deserved and then uh, being raised again by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you believe that, you're now stuck in this, in, in this moment of, of trying to figure out, okay, how do I wrestle that out? How do I understand that? How do I apply that? What does that look like as I move forward? Day to day, week to week, hour to hour, as I engage with my kids, how do I live the Christian life? How do I flex the Christian muscle? And, and a lot of times we, we can get part of it and not necessarily all of it. So some, sometimes we think that um, the Christian life now is defined simply by social justice. So we can look at passages in Micah 6, 8, that God wants us to act justly, to, to love mercy and walk humbly before God. And so, and so the Christian life then, what it looks like is, is a social justice kind of life, that we look outwards and we meet people's needs and we do what's good for the community. Or or maybe we look and we think that the Christian life is actually just about law abiding, doing the right things. We we look in God's word and we see a list of things that we should do and things that we shouldn't do. And so so we we, we really distill the Christian life down to a, a right acting or a right thinking. I should be compassionate and I shouldn't murder people and I should love my wife and I shouldn't, you know get angry or, or whatever. And so, and so we, we distill the Christian life down to just law abiding. Or, or maybe we've distilled the Christian life down to simply a get out of jail free card. Like we're just like, oh yeah, yeah. Now I got this Jesus card in my back pocket. So when I fail, that's okay. Like I, I can do what I want on Friday night and I show up on Sunday and I say, Jesus, thank you for your forgiveness. And it's just a get out of jail free card. Or, or maybe we think about the Christian life as something that's just like, now, now I get to live my best life. Like the, the best life is now. Now this God who loves me is just going to pour blessing out on me. He's going to uh, g- give me all it is that I need or want. I mean, Jesus said he, he came to give life to the full. And so I should expect then that this life and this time should be filled with joy and blessing and grace and mercy. And, and the reality is, is that each one of these things has, has truth in it, but, but as we engage, if, if, if we distill it down to just one of those things or, or don't quite understand how the Trinity uh, works in that, it, it can feel effort-filled. When I was uh, 16, my, my dad uh, bought a boat off of my uncle that was now strong enough to actually pull us skiing. We used to make do doing like water skiing with a fishing boat, and then he, he took the plunge. But at the same time, he in ignorance bought a wakeboard boat. Uh, wakeboard. This boat is not made for wakeboarding. We had no idea what we were doing. And I've learned that one of the uh, joys of a father is using your kids as guinea pigs. 
So he was just like, hey, I got this board for you guys. How about we try it out? Secretly, he wanted to learn to wakeboard, but was too old to figure it out. So he got me at 16 to jump in the water. And he's like, ah, the guy at the store just told me, you start off with your feet like this. You hold the rope uh, between your feet. And when the boat pulls, you should just be able to stand up. That's all we had. And I tried. And I tried. And I tried. You know how hard it is to pull that much water? Like the boat goes and you're just dragging like four feet of water this entire time. And after a while, your arms just get so tired. You can't do it. Something isn't right. Like I was exhausted. The next day, I could not lift a glass of water. Like I could not pinch it hard enough. I had to use a straw. Right. So funny when... You know, we have a conversation later with somebody who actually knows how to wakeboard. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, you started right, but you missed one, one piece. Turn the board. <laughs> now, it's so easy. If we would have just talked to somebody, it would have been amazing. Like, we could have tried three times. Oh, up we go, and now we're actually doing the wakeboarding. Right, I think, I think sometimes that this is, this is the grind that we get and, and when we don't quite understand the Trinity in its fullness as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we end up like wakeboarders not knowing the, the, the nuance, just that little bit that makes it make sense. So I want to focus on 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 today um, to kind of jump us off on this reality. Uh, so 1 Peter 1, 1 to 2, if you have it, you can look in your Bibles. It will be on the screen behind us. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Short passage. Right, so P Peter is writing to this, this, these dispersed Christians in these areas. He's, he's not writing to a particular church. He's writing to a group of people that he calls elect exiles. Now, exiles are people who were conquered, and the conquering nation came and moved them out into all of these different areas. And so what would happen is you wouldn't be able to kind of keep your culture or get diluted in these other cultures. And so what he's saying is, look... I'm writing to you out there who, who look at the culture around you. You know Jesus. You know what he's done for you. You know that, that God came to save you and, 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 and make you into a right relationship with him. But you look around and you're like, I, man, I, I'm lost here. I'm, I'm an exile here. I, I don't fit in. I don't understand how this Christian life is supposed to work in this Space and then and then he goes to kind of talk about right. So this is this is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. I hope you see there the three: Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so I think I think we can look at then how the uh, the Trinity um, affects the Christian life. First, in understanding that the Christian life is a three-person reality. And then second, that should then reorient how we think about the Christian life. So first, uh, the Christian life in three persons. Foreknowledge of God. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, is what Peter says. 
Now, we can get hung up on the term foreknowledge, and rightfully so. That brings up lots of philosophical and theological questions that I want to skip over. (laughs) Not because they're not important. There is value in understanding how God works in history past and understanding the theological reality behind foreknowledge. But I do, I do want to take that and I want to, I want to put it aside and I, and I want to show that what, what, God is, what God has accomplished in, 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 in the past or what he's purposing in the future is, is for a, a purpose. So when, when Peter talks about according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, we need to ask to what end? So what he knew before, to what end is he pushing us? Well, Ephesians 2 Chapter or verse 10 uses the, the same kinds of wording. For we are his workmanship. Me and you, Christian, are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this foreknowledge is such that it's pointing towards a a good works, good works that we are to accomplish. Or Romans 8, chapter 29 through 30, similar language. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he, who he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice, God foreknew to change you into the image of his son. That God purposed that we would look like, act like, be like Jesus. When God plucked you from running off the edge of the cliff of eternity into your own foolish condemnation, he did not do so so that you could run back towards the cliff and give you more time. He plucked you and wants to move you towards good works, to look like something, to act like something. Jesus in John chapter 8 verse 29 says, For I always do the things that are pleasing to him, God. So God foreknew that we would look like Jesus, and Jesus always does what is pleasing to God. So in the foreknowledge of God, we were created for good works. And then the end portion of First Peter, for obedience to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so when, when Jesus came and lived his life and taught his disciples and, and had the Sermon on the Mount and, and brought these 12 around him and, and more and sent them out and showed them miracles and, and, and explained to them that, look, like I came to fulfill the Father's will and, and I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay that, that penalty that, that you should, 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 should have and then I'm going to be raised again. And then after all of that, he gathers his disciples before he goes into heaven and he says, he says this to them in Matthew 28, 18 to 19. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus, his final direction to the disciples is, look, I want you to go out, tell people what I've done, and then teach them to obey what I have said and taught you. So what you know on the Sermon on the Mount, you need to teach others so that they do it. And then Peter comes and says, look, like, according to the foreknowledge of God, for obedience to Christ, what he asked you to do, you ought to do. Or John 14, 15, Jesus' words, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So at this point, we might be tempted to think, so I guess the Christian life is simply a WWJD endeavor. What would Jesus do? Let's get the bracelet, let's put it on, let's remind ourselves what would Jesus do, and then just look through this and as an instruction manual and figure out what it is that he wants. Like, this is good, this is bad, I should focus on this and not on that. I, I should accomplish this and strive towards this and not towards that. And, and this isn't to say that the Bible isn't clear that we are called to obedience, but it is to say, is that, is that it? These good works are it. So, that if, so, so we can look at our lives, we can measure our lives simply by saying, what did this last week look like? Did this, did, did this week go on the positive side of the scale or the negative side of the scale? And then we really start to push water, like in wakeboarding. Oh, that gets tiring. Because we miss the middle part. In the sanctification of the spirit. So the sanctification of the spirit, sanctification is a funny uh, or is a, is a theological word that kind of has two realities. On, on the one hand, when, it, when scripture talks about sanctification, it talks about something that you already have as a believer in Christ, that you are already doing and being right before God. You are justified, you're made right and you are acting right before God. It's, it's because God has worked in his foreknowledge that he can talk about it in such a way that you, you are act. even though yesterday you made a mistake, scripture talks about you are sanctified. And on the other hand, it talks about a slow process of plying us into the image of Christ, that we would obey and do his will. Sanctification is a process of doing more of the good works that Christ exemplified. Sanctification is a process of becoming more like Jesus. The process of becoming more obedient. But it's sanctification of the spirit. 
So Romans 5, chapter 5 says, um, after Paul kind of talks about uh, this Christian life, and he, and he says suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character does not put us to shame, or, uh, uh, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given us. See, the, the Holy Spirit, as, as, a, as, as a member of the Trinity, as a person of the, the Trinity, comes and manifests the love that we talked about last week, that this full-orbed, audacious, like otherworldly love that God lavishes upon us is brought into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we have hope in, in all sorts of circumstances. That, that, that realization, that, that manifestation of love is, 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 is what kind of turns our hearts towards Christ. But why then send the Spirit? Why not just pour that love into our hearts, help us understand that? Well, John 15, verse 26, but when the Helper comes, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. See, the primary purpose of the Spirit is to point to Christ. So bear witness to what it is that Christ accomplished and did and who he was and what he taught. So he comes and he lives in your hearts and he opens your eyes to what is good and right and true in the world, namely Jesus himself. And that you would, you would lift your eyes from, from the mire of, of, of everyday life and, and you would look to the cross and you, and you would see who this person is in Christ and you would, it would be revealed to you who he is. But, but why, why is that the purpose? Why, why send this, this third member of the Trinity to lift your eyes so that you can see and revel more clearly in who Christ is? Well, John chapter 17, verse 3, the beginning of Jesus' high priestly prayer. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You want eternal life? It's about knowing who God is and what he has done in the cross. The spirit comes and lives in you and starts to manifest that to you and open up your eyes to the reality of who God is and what he's accomplished. Who better, who better to do that than someone who spent eternity past in perfect fellowship with, the Holy, with God Almighty? The Father and the Son and, and knows intimately the plan that the Father had and how it is that, that Jesus accomplished that through his life, death, and resurrection. Who better to do that than the third person of the Trinity to come and live in you and open your eyes and, and open scripture so that you can see and savor and know God and then grasp eternal life. What then is accomplished in that? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image of, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. Paul, in 2 Corinthians, is pointing back. He's just finished talking about Moses and how uh, when Moses went up to, on the mountain to get the commandments from God, 
uh, he asked to, to see God, and, and, and God hit him in a cliff and, and moved past him, and he just saw the, like the backside of God. And because of that, because of that reality, his face glowed so radiantly that the people of Israel actually asked him to put a, a veil over his face, and he had to stay in his own tent because he just beamed with the glory of God. His, his, his recognition, his his, just that brief experience of, of essentially the backside of God, um, just a, a brief glimpse caused him to radiate. People were like, that's just too bright. You need to put something over your face. You need to hide yourself away. And, and what Paul is saying is right. We now with the Holy Spirit, because of the Holy Spirit's work, can revel in and know and understand the glory of God to its full extent and therefore then be transformed into this radiant image of Christ. The Spirit is not an impersonal force giving us the power to bend our will to the will of God. But a person filling us with the love of God, revealing to us the greatness of God, and by so doing, transforming us into the likeness of God. So then how does that reorient the Christian life? How does that change the way we think? Because it, the, the reality is, is that we are called to good works. Scripture is clear about that. James says that faith without works is dead. His argument is if you don't have the right faith, then... then, then then, then of course you wouldn't have works. But when you have the right faith, faith, you would have the right works. So how then does the Christian life get reoriented when we understand that it is a three-personed reality, that God the Father foreknew those good works, that we are doing them to the obedience of Christ, and that the Holy Spirit works in us to reveal Christ to us? Well, I can think of three that I think start us in that way. The first is true affection. Again, John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I think often we read that um, and we emphasize that you will keep my commandments. And we see it through the lens of the keeping of the commandments and say, well, if, let's, let's look at it this way, backwards through. And if, if you keep the commandments, then obviously you love God. But I think it's actually stacked the other way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The weight is on the love of Christ. I don't, um, I don't love my wife because of the things that she asks me to do. I love her, so I do the things that she asks me to do. You see the difference? Right. Jonathan Edwards uh, was a Puritan preacher in the uh, early 1700s, wrote a book uh, called Religious Affection. And because... Um, that era of English is incredibly difficult to read. Uh, we refer to John Piper instead, who was so 
overwhelmed by what Jonathan Edwards had to say in this book, Religious Affection, where he kind of talked about, no, 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 like the, the Christian life is actually more about affection and the orientation of the heart than it is about the right doings of things. So John Piper started um, Desiring God, and he wrote a book called Desiring God, and, and his point in that book was... Um, up to that point, the Westminster Confession had said to uh, the chief end of man, answering that question, what is our grand purpose? What should we do? Like, what should we strive to? The Westminster Confession said to glorify God and, and to enjoy him forever. Two tasks. Glorify him, worship him, and enjoy him forever. And John Piper was like, no, 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 no. I, I want to adjust that a little bit. It may seem like semantics, but his thing was, no, no, no. We need to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And in that book, he wrote this, minimizing the importance of transformed feelings makes Christian conversion less supernatural and less radical. It is humanly manageable to make decisions of the will for Christ. No supernatural power is required to pray prayers, sign cards, walk aisles, or even stop sleeping around. Those are good. They just don't prove that anything spiritual has happened. Christian conversion, on the other hand, is a supernatural, radical thing. The heart is changed. And the evidence of it is not just new decisions, but new affections, new feelings. That's what Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel chapter 36. God says, look, I'm going to come and I'm going to take out your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you an affection for me that, you, that when you read this, you're going to say, I love you and therefore I follow your commandments. Look, I, I love fishing. I, I really do. And you might judge me for that. That's fine. Like I can spend so much time thinking about all of the different aspects of fishing, like how it actually works. What kinds of fish am I going for? What are the bugs that are hatching at this particular point in time? How do I imitate that bug with a fly? What knot is the right kind of knot to tie with that kind of fly? What's the right kind of leader that I should use? What's the right kind of fly line? Should it be a sinking line or a floating line? What weight line should I use? What weight rod should I use based on the kind of fish that I'm going for? And half of you are already asleep. Right. But I can spend hours just scrolling through YouTube videos or how-to manuals or reading books about how this works, spending time in the fly shop, in the fishing shop, and coveting over new rods or new lines. And you're just like, what's the difference between that one and that one besides their color? Like, oh, this one sinks two inches per minute less than that one. And that matters for this kind of species. Right, now why do I do that? I mean, if you would watch me, do I love tying knots no, that's the boring part. But I love fishing. I have an affection for fishing. And the joy that it brings me to be out in nature and to, and to feel that fish strike the line and know that the things that I did and the research that I did beforehand paid off. What helps me engage in that in the moments when it's difficult is not the fact that I know how to perfectly tie the knot, but because I love what I'm doing. 
So often we approach the Christian life in the opposite way. We focus on the not. I must not be angry. 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 I shouldn't be greedy. I shouldn't be greedy. I shouldn't be greedy. And essentially, we drive our vehicles looking in the rearview mirror. The key to Christian life is not what we do, but what do we love? I've never been to the Grand Canyon, and so I could go on Google and I could tell you all about it. But wouldn't it be better to hear from somebody who stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon and looked at its grandeur, and maybe walked out on that walkway that's insane, like insane with the, the glass or whatever, that you can just stand out there and feel like you're floating? I don't know who would ever do that. <clears throat> but, right, so like, who would you rather hear from? The guy who Googled it and tells you the information or the one who stood on the edge of the precipice and looked down at it and saw its grandeur and was changed by it? I think it's that guy. I think too often we actually approach God as if we Googled him and are now, and are now just like, okay, I guess I sort of know what to do and I'll look at this and what does he want me to do and what does he not want me to do? How often do we actually spend like gazing at the glory of God and what he did in Christ and having that change our affection, not our action. That we would, that we would love our Father in heaven. The key to the Christian life is not what do I do, but what do I love? John 14, verse 31, Jesus is speaking but I do as the Father has commanded me. Why? So that the world may know that I love the Father. What motivated the Son to give up everything to come down? A love for the Father. What motivated his obedience? A love for the Father. Why do we spend so much time tying knots? Not enough time discovering the God who stooped to save us standing on the precipice of his glory and grace and beauty and reveling at who he is. Right, the Christian life would also be reoriented in terms of unity, not oneness. John 17, again in this high priestly prayer, verse 22 Jesus prays, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one ever as we are one. See, as we understand that the the triune God meets us in our Christian life in these three distinct ways, we start to realize that God is a, a unity, a one. But we start to think Borg like. Now, do I need to explain the Borg? I hope not. Right? Like, every, everybody is the same. Everybody's robotic. I mean, maybe that's my generation, but it doesn't matter. We think alike. We, we do. We act alike. And so what our Christian life ends up looking like is instead of beholding the glory of God and becoming more like him, what we do is we look to our left or we look to our right and we say, like, they got it together. I guess I should just be more like them. 
Often we do that looking forward here. Oh, you, you know what the perfect or the good Christian life looks like or what I should strive to be is like the, the preacher. Like me. Okay, now, whoa, don't. But we do, we do that. Like, oh, what God has called us to is just this uniformity, this oneness, this, this like there's nothing but just as long as everybody looks the same, as everybody is just cookie cutter. But the reality is, is that's, that's not the trinity that we, that we know that God has revealed. These are individual persons in unity with one another, accomplishing different tasks for a united purpose. God the Father is distinct from God the Son, and God the Spirit is distinct from God the Father and God the Son. So our understanding of the diversity and unity in the, in the Trinity is integral here. When we see that God is absolutely unified and yet, a different, uh, and yet different persons, we can begin to grasp that unity is not sameness. This means that our church cannot be defined by gender or political leanings, social economic status, age, or gifting. Have you, ever, have you ever heard that? Oh, that church is for old people. That's the young person church. That's garbage. God, God brought us together by the work of the Holy Spirit so that we could be united to him, becoming more like him in our giftings and the way that he's created us, that we would image him, not the next person. We're not looking around to see whether or not we fit in here. We're looking around to see whether or not each person loves the same thing. That's, that's what Corinthians is about. Look, the Holy Spirit comes along and says, look, I'm gonna give you this gift and you that gift and you this gift. You're gonna look like a toe and you're gonna look like an eye and you're gonna be a mouthpiece and you're a nose. And that whole picture is to be like, look, this is the body of Christ. So different and yet unified in one direction towards a love of God. Because that's the example that we have in the Trinity. No, the church ought to be defined by a mutual love for God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. And what has been revealed about him through Scripture. We should be delighted to see and experience the unique giftings that have been brought together. The church is the church exactly because we are diverse, distinct, different persons, called in unity to love the same beautiful, glorious God. Third, it reorients the Christian life to be motivated outward. Look, the, lo the love of the Father flowed outward to his son, Jesus, before the foundation of the world. The love between the Father and the Son flowed out into creation through the power of the Holy Spirit to create all things. The love of the Father and the Son flowed out by sending him for our salvation and applying it through then the Spirit. And the love of the Father and Son flowed out to us by the sending of his Spirit to dwell in our hearts and give us new hearts and an affection for him. So why do we think that it stops with us? Like that somehow we have just been created 
to suck in all of God's love and grace and mercy and beauty and essentially just be gluttons for God. Just cul-de-sacs where we just gather all of the blessings of God and never share them. No, the the Christian life is motivated outwards just like our Father in heaven is motivated outwards. God's love overflowed to us and therefore his love should overflow from our hearts to those around us, should it not? This has massive implications in so many areas. Uh, One, like uh, life groups, such an interesting reality in in that we... We experience and know the love of God and, and, can, and can grow in him and, and have the, the support of fellow believers come along and, and, and encourage us in our gifts and help us in our weakness and pray for us when we're struggling and bring along uh, meals when we're in hospital or, or, or when we have a new child. And then we say, yes, but that's mine. All of this blessing from God is mine. Nobody else is allowed in. We're, we're not opening the doors to anybody else because look at all this good stuff. We're just, we're just gonna keep it here. We're just gonna, we're, we're gonna just bask in this love of God and try and build walls around it so that we can have it all. As if God's love can be diluted and if we opened the doors and allowed others in to experience that same grace and same mercy and same love that was poured out on us, that somehow then God would just be like, oh, I'm too tired today. Sorry, man, you're, you're like, you just don't get enough. Right, God is so outflowing in love that it's lavish. It, it doesn't end in that way. It's the same with the physical blessings that we have, whether it's skills or abilities or or talents or treasure. We're so good at hoarding it as if God's love and blessing would not continue. No, 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 no. We, as image bearers of Christ, as sons and daughters of the Most High God, should be outwardly motivated just like our Father in heaven is outwardly motivated. Just as his love pours out into our lives through his spirit, then we too would be people who have love overflow our hearts into those around us. Right. A Christian life is a life of affection, of unity, and of outward focus. At least that's a start. Let's pray. Father, uh, I can't, oh God, we so need your spirit to come and open our eyes to the beauty of your, your gospel. God, would you give us eyes to see the, the, the beauty that, that surrounds us? Your scriptures say that the heavens and earth declare your glory, that we can look at the stars and we can see your creativity. We can look at the mountains and we can see your steadfastness, God, and that you were gracious enough to grant us your word so that we can see into your very heart of grace and mercy through Christ. Oh God, would you by your spirit give us eyes to see and give us hearts to, to savor, to, to bask in that glory. God, would you help us love you more, not just Not just do the right things, but love you more. Would you lavish your spirit upon us so that our hearts will be soft 
and inclines towards you. Would we lift our eyes to the mountains and see a beautiful God that where our help comes from? And would we grasp how deep, how wide, how long your love is for us in Christ Jesus? Pray this in your precious name. Amen.